This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to The Russell Moore Show, and here at The Russell Moore Show, we bring you conversations to help you navigate Christian faith in confusing times. Through the next several weeks, conversations on the podcast will revolve around themes in Russell Moore's book, Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. It's a book Publishers Weekly says will buoy disillusioned hearts and minds. Losing Our Religion is available wherever you buy your books. So, if you're feeling disillusioned and looking for clear-eyed gospel hope, we hope you enjoy these upcoming conversations. In Russell's book, he writes this, You can decide to lose your illusions in one way in order to see something that is not visible but is nonetheless real. And with that, we can choose to be the people who embody a credible gospel, a gospel that is more than an illusion, more than a useful means to an end. Somewhere out there, there's at least one disillusioned 15-year-old losing his religion who needs to see that. Maybe his life depends on it. Maybe yours does too. In this conversation around themes of disillusionment and credibility and what does it look like to talk about secularizing forces in the culture and in the church, Russell sits down with pastor, theologian, and apologist Sam Albury. Listen in to this great conversation. It will give you hope for disillusionment as well as how we might proceed in this moment in time. Listen in. We've been talking through themes of the book that 
that I just released, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. And today I wanted to talk about this issue of credibility and a credibility crisis that faces the church, faces the uh, advance of the gospel right now around the world and in North America. And one person who immediately came to mind is my friend Sam Alberry, who's a pastor and apologist and author. He's written many books, including Is God Anti-Gay? Why Bother with the Church? What God Has to Say About Our Bodies? And Speaks all over the world all the time. Sam and I are part of the same local church, Emmanuel Church here in Nashville. Sam, when you think about uh, the situation that you went through when you were a staff apologist at Ravi Zacharias uh, International Ministries, and of course, we remember the meltdown that happened when these allegations came out about uh, Ravi Zacharias. This was one that I think hit me and hit a lot of people much harder than some of the other scandals that we've we've seen because we didn't see it happening. It it just seemed to be completely out of thin air. You were there during all of that. What what was that like? Yeah, it was the I mean the, the whole episode was was easily the most stressful thing I've ever I've ever been through. And not helped by the fact that it all happened during COVID. So not mm. only were we reeling from what we thought initially were just outlandish allegations and then beginning to realize this was substantive and, and real, but we couldn't process that with each other in person in any way. So the, the sort of the crazy element of it was was kind of intensified in each one of us um, because I think that, that in-person get-together just helps have a slightly moderating effect on you. It, it, it kind of gives you a bit more nuance than you might otherwise have had. So I think one of the reasons it felt as though the team fell apart so quickly was because we couldn't be together. So we were all mm -hmm. processing this on our own, having staff meetings, crisis calls via Zoom. And uh, so it, it, was a, it was an awful thing to go through and it was a really bad time to go through that awful thing. The, the combination of all of that made it, made it pretty pretty terrible. Yeah, and I would think also this isn't a case of not that not that this would be all right, but it's not a case of a leader who has this moment of temptation yields and and then there's the wreckage after this. These allegations that came out in the investigation into uh, Ravi Zacharias's life were horrifying to a level that I haven't even really seen in the secular world much, much less in the Christian world. Did you have a moment where you thought, what have I been doing for this long? I, I did. I think we all did. What have we been part of? Yes, very much so, because as you say, this wasn't just an egregious sin terrible though that would be, this was a, a long-established pattern that had been going on for many, many years, seemingly with, with impunity. So I, I think, you know, we all felt just by being part of the organization, knowing the man, having his name on our, our you know, job titles and all the rest of it, yeah, it, 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 just, felt, it just felt awful. 
there, there's a there's a British comedy show that was around 10 years ago or so and there's a famous sketch I'll be the baddies um, where a, mm -hmm. a Nazi soldier on the on the Eastern Front says to his friend you know we've got skulls on our helmets are we are we the baddies and there was a, a bit of gallows humor within some of us on the team but that that meme got sent around quite a bit because we were thinking if we we thought we were part of something that was good and noble and had integrity we thought this this figurehead was was a not a perfect man but a a fine man and a, an unusually gifted man so to suddenly realize all of this was not what we had known to be the case and and was was so shocking that 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 affected all of us very deeply did you learn anything during that time about institutions dealing with crisis I, I hope so. I mean, yes. And I, there, I'm, I'm sure there is a huge amount more I should have learned. I, I think for me, the sort of the, the initial concerns came by how the institution responded to the initial allegations. Because when, particularly when the, the Christianity Today articles began to come out, you know, those, those were highly credible. Those were, you know, done with grown up journalism. This wasn't some blogger from a basement or anything like this. This was all mm -hmm. stuff that had been looked into. I remember thinking that the tone and content of the response from the board and the leadership was, at a gut level, that was, to me, that it was devastating. And I remember when the first statement came out post that, that Christianity Today article, I remember... I was in the UK at the time. I was driving from our office in Oxford back to my home in Maidenhead. And I remember thinking in the car, I was actually in tears. And I was saying to the Lord, okay, I am now mentally giving you this job that I, that I have loved. I'm emotionally letting go of it because I need to be ready to resign at a moment's notice. And I, I need to emotionally make that break now so that I can mm -hmm. make that decision if I need to. Because that initial response from the, from the institution just... It, it was heartbreaking because I thought, okay, mm -hmm. it's it's one thing that Ravi isn't who we thought he was. It's another thing that this institution might not be who I thought we were. So the the sort of circling the wagons, and, and particularly as part of our raison d'etre as a, as a ministry, and the thing we, we, we stood by was no questions off limits, um, and the truth will set you free and follow the evidence wherever it goes. And... Mm -hmm. The institutional response seemed to contradict everything that we as team members thought we were about as a ministry. And that was that was profoundly disappointing. Were you were you able to do that to sort of come to that moment of saying I'm emotionally and, and mentally handing this this job over? I did. Yeah, I did that that day in the car. I thought I, I need to say goodbye to this in my heart so that if I yeah. need to to quit, I've already done the emotional letting go ahead of time yeah so yes and there's a lot of lessons to be learned i'm actually just last week talking to some some friends about this about the, the role of boards within christian institutions and christian ministries and mm -hmm. uh, the, the need for for much more clarity about what the responsibilities of a board are how they should mm -hmm. be comprised um all, all those kinds of things we've seen this too many times now where the, the board is simply there to be the, the, the sort of the yes man to the, to the leadership of the organization. So there's a lot to learn on that front as well. 
What advice would you give to somebody? Because I think there are a lot of people who are in this situation. Maybe they're in a church or they're in a job. They're in some sort of context where they're kind of having that moment that you did in the car. And they're saying, should I hand this over emotionally and mentally to God? And should I leave? And how do I know? Because on the one hand, you might say, I've got a church in crisis or an organization in crisis, and they need grown-ups and people of integrity to, to help shepherd them through it. On the other hand, there's a certain point at which there's a kind of complicity that mm. comes with, with being there, and there comes also a great harm to oneself and to other people. So how do, you, how do you sort through all of that and know when it's right to leave and when it's time to stay? Yeah, it's, it's complicated. Um, I, I love James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God because there are times like that when it's a wisdom issue to know, do I, do I stick around and try to, to affect some kind of change from within? And if I do, for how long do I do that before I'm, I'm realizing this is, this is not going to make any significant difference? It, it really helped me to have others within the team. We could process some of these things together. That helped enormously having church leadership here in Nashville to to process this with this through with as, as well really helped and having friends who were outside the situation also really helped. I, I think for me, what I was trying to do was to think, okay, let's let's give the institution an opportunity to do the right thing. None of us gets everything right immediately the first mm -hmm. time. Let, let's allow some grace there. Let's have conversations internally that we we might need to have and, and hope that um, things will kind of will improve. And if you're sensing, okay, nothing is fundamentally changing here, that that's when I think the category of feeling unequally yoked begins to come in. And you sort of think, actually, I, I think it's just wrong for me to be bound to this institution if if it seems determined to go in a direction that is that is not honoring to the Lord. Yeah. And even even after that decision is made, there's a lot of hurt that comes not just in the months after that, but the years after that decision. Isn't that right? When you've sort of given yourself to a particular ministry and now it's it's gone, there's a that that's not an easy thing just to just to walk away from. No, it isn't. And there's 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 different areas of grief. There's the grief of, in this instance, what Ravi had done and the, the lives he had crushed along the way. Uh, there was the grief of of realizing that the sort of institutional failings that that were part of that and that followed it. There's the grief of I've I've. I loved working with that team. Uh, I remember saying in one of our staff meetings, um, in a moment of exasperation, I said, I can't imagine not working with these people, but I can't imagine continuing to work with this organization. And there's, there's heartache in that. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. 
You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I was thinking about this particular situation at several points when I was writing that chapter on uh, losing our credibility, because I don't think I mentioned this in the chapter itself, but there were several people who talked to me, and I know you have, have had this conversation, I'm sure, before, of someone who said, I came to Christ because I heard Ravi Zacharias uh, speaking on a campus, or I watched some Ravi Zacharias videos when I was sort of trying to sort through, is Jesus real? Is Jesus really raised from the dead? And became convinced by that. Because, of course, he was traveling all over the world and often would be either in in dialogues with atheists or others, but more typically there would be questions from the audience, uh, from skeptical people, and he would he would guide people and work people through it. And a lot of those people who said, "That's this is who convinced me that the gospel is true, and now I find out this, what does that mean for my faith? Yeah. How, do, how do you answer that? Yeah, I've, I've heard that a lot, not just from, from people who were converted through Ravi's ministry, but through ministries of other people who have yeah. since, you know, been exposed as as fraudulent or abusive or other things. And I, I want to lament with them because, again, I, there's a theological response, but there's also just, I, I want to affirm their, their sense of grief. They've lost something profound in, in learning these particular things. But I, I want to reassure them that actually the truth is God's. And very fallible people steward God's truth. And their faith wasn't in Ravi. Their faith was in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we know when we come to faith that we we realize it's, it's the work of, of the Lord that has enabled that. He uses different human means along the way. But um, there's, a, there's an old Anglican kind of principle that the the worthiness or unworthiness of the minister doesn't negate the actual work of the Lord itself. Mm-hmm. God can still have worked, um, even though the man being used was was a wicked man. That doesn't justify the wickedness, right? But it means that when that wickedness is then exposed and and discovered, we don't write off the spiritual things that happened happened through it. Yeah, but you can certainly understand how someone would come to that uh, conclusion. I thought about it a lot in writing the book because I, I talked at one point about my dad and how my dad was 
very conflicted about the church. And he knew why he was conflicted. It's because he was a pastor's son who lived in a parsonage right next to the church. And he couldn't avoid uh, seeing the sorts of things that go on in churches, the the power plays and the the politics and those sorts of things. And it, it left him really conflicted about the church. And I think about that decisions that uh, decisions that somebody made to go into a kitchen and to say particular things to their pastor were still having an effect Hmm. 50 years later. And that's that's really sobering if you think about it, because there are all kinds of things that happen in not, not even you know, far from the sort of Ravi Zacharias type scandals, but things that happen that it's easy just to forget them and to move on without knowing they still kind of have a life of their own that we can sometimes not even see. Yeah, and I think there's there's a that's a function of, of how God has created us. I mean, our, our words have power, and what we might think of is just me letting off steam at my pastor in his kitchen those words can have an effect that, as you say, last even decades. We, we need to steward our behavior very wisely because of that, because we're, we're designed as human beings made in God's image. We're designed to have an impact on other people. And so it just means we've got, all, we've got to be all the more watchful of our own words, our own conduct, because what we might write off as being, I was just having a bad day last week, actually could mm-hmm. be profoundly affecting the faith of somebody else and uh, there, there are warnings for that reason in scripture about you know not leading little ones to, to stumble because of that mm-hmm. you you mentioned covid uh, making the, the crisis that you went through so much worse because you weren't together i mean obviously covid did not cause the crisis uh, at all but it was happening at the same time I am becoming convinced, and I wonder what you think. I'm becoming convinced just as of the past week, I think, that COVID has done far more damage to people mentally, emotionally, uh, spiritually than we imagined. And I think that I took it seriously in terms of the kinds of scars that it would leave. But we are not over this yet, are we? No, and there was it, it was on, on multiple fronts because there was the experience of going through a pandemic itself and the world shutting down and all that that meant in terms of work and relationships and just trying to do what you do. But in addition to that, maybe for for many of us even worse than that, was the kind of explosion of division and um, all the politics that that attended all of that made it a thousand Mm -hmm. times worse. I think it was in the the second or third chapter of your book, you talk about, I think you might even be quoting somebody else about, you know, we were hoping maybe there'll be a national emergency that will bring us all together. Mm-hmm. And we had a national emergency, actually a global emergency, that actually only exacerbated our differences and, and pulled us further apart. 
the, the process of, of going through COVID profoundly weakened our trust in institutions. Um, that was yeah. already having, happening at, you know, prior to that, but that was massively accelerated during COVID. And so some of those broader societal structures and institutions that, that did have some kind of stabilizing effect, there is now so much mistrust of them, such a lack of confidence in them. I, th I think that is contributing as well to this sense of anxiety because it feels like we're, we're heading into frightening and uncharted waters where the things that were still just about holding us together might be falling apart. Hmm. Why did you become a Christian? <laughs> Actually, 30 years ago this week, I was on hmm. a church youth group retreat and had been hearing the message of Jesus. It had been ringing true. I, I knew in my heart I was a sinner and that I needed the very thing Jesus had, had come to, to provide. I knew that at an abstract level. What I began to realize was what that meant at a personal level and began to realize, no, Jesus hung on a cross for me. Um, he had my sin in mind when he went to that cross and when he, he rose from that grave and just had a profound sense that this is, this is someone I, I want to build my life upon. I remember consciously thinking, if he's given his life for me, then the only rational thing is to give my life for him, not as a trying to repay what he's done for me, but just as why wouldn't I give him my whole life? Mm -hmm. So I, I had a profound confidence that I could trust him. I, I knew virtually nothing about what being a Christian would look like, nothing about what discipleship would entail or what Jesus would, would require of me. I just knew that whatever it was, it would be okay because it's Jesus and I know I can trust him. He's shown me in his death and resurrection that I can trust him. Hmm. Did you ever have points after that where you kind of wavered and, and wondered, is this true or was it so so certain for you from the very beginning? I never I never wondered whether he was true. I did have mm -hmm. seasons of wondering whether I really was a, a true sheep um, mm -hmm. because I, mm -hmm. I could still see so much mess in my heart, so much anxiety, so much fear. I never trusted his faithfulness to keep his promises. I just questioned whether I was someone who actually had received those promises. So the crisis was at my end, not at his end. But I've never... I've never questioned i've never really questioned his goodness there have been times when i've i've felt confounded by what he's allowed to go on around me or in the lives of others close to me but i remember reading one of c.s lewis's letters where it was just um around the time his his wife had received her cancer diagnosis and he was writing to a friend saying we have we have no doubt that jesus will be good to us we just don't know how painful his goodness is going to be mm -hmm. so i think i think i've always had a sort of similar conviction that he will do what is right, but what is right might hurt a bit along the way. I was talking last week. There's a, a group of folks. We get together once a week, usually when we all can. Uh, and our friend Tim Keller was part of that group. And one person there who was talking about having said something one day about Christianity. And Tim said, yeah, but that's not Christianity. Hmm. And, and then went through and explained what Christianity was. And at several points in the conversation, 
he would say something and he would stop and say, yeah, but I think Tim would tell me that that's not Christianity and would look at me and I would say, yeah, that's not Christianity or whatever it was. But I was thinking about the fact that in that group, there's, there's an atheist, and I mean a hardened materialist atheist, that he and Tim used to go back and forth all the time on what's the grounding of morality. At one point, uh, he said to Tim, I just don't know why the arguments that you use couldn't apply to Santa Claus uh, as much as they do to God. But when Tim died, this atheist said, I loved him. Hmm. And I'm wondering if we think about Tim's life in terms of taking gospel Christianity to people who may not have any connection at all with Christianity, as happened so often uh, in New York. How is that done in a time like now? Well, Tim was a wonderful example of, of I guess, what, what others might have called friendship evangelism, but it, it's mm-hmm. it's not just trying to share the gospel in some abstract, I'm going to tweet a verse every day, and then that's that's me fulfilling the Great Commission, but actually coming alongside people and loving them, mm-hmm. having those conversations, having the back and forth, having the disagreements even, but but doing so in the context of of that person knowing you are for them and a sense of respect, care, love, all of those things are, are so significant. And as the, the kind of standard of our discourse today ever diminishes that the presence of of love of kindness of civility of taking an interest in others that christian character is going to be more and more i think more and more significant in those conversations because people are used to hearing talking heads disagreeing and arguing with each other we we get that mm-hmm. on the news we get that around the, the family table sometimes but to have it have someone who disagrees with you but is showing you that they don't look down on you because of that they don't think you are less than they are because of that but they actually are committed to you and care for you and respect your views enough to understand them properly and engage with them thoughtfully those things do make a difference precisely because they're so rare today mm-hmm. and and Tim was an unusual example of that that he he earned the respect of of the people around him, not just because his mind was extraordinary, but because he was godly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting. I know you've you've talked about this before, but how many of the the tributes to Tim don't mention his gifts, but do mention his character? Oh, that's exactly right. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, 
Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You talk to a lot of skeptics and non-Christians and have from the very beginning of your ministry. Have you noticed the questions changing from when you started out in ministry from from what they are now? Oh, dramatically. I mean, some of them are still there. What, you know, how can God allow suffering? Mm-hmm. What makes you think you're right? Those, those sorts of questions are, are perennial. But if, if I think about when I was at university in the mid-90s, the questions that were buzzing around campus then towards Christians were were of a very different nature to the questions now. 30 years ago, it was, I don't like Christianity because you're too moral. Mm-hmm. You're too holier than thou. You're too uptight and, you know, all those sorts of things. Now it's going to be, I don't like Christianity because you're too immoral. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a danger. Uh, I, we used to be quaint and old-fashioned. Now we're seen as as a threat to people's mental health. We're seen as as being a danger to, to people. So that has shaped, we've gone from being the, the do-gooders to the, to the bad guys. And I get that. I totally see how that's happened, given the, the cultural changes that have taken place. I, I see why people think that way. I'm not going to have a go at them for that. But as well, I think back in the 90s, if I've, I've always had the same approach of if I'm getting into to serious conversations with someone, I encourage them to read a gospel if they've never done that mm-hmm. as, a, as an adult. I do the same thing. And yeah. try to have a stack that I can give someone a gospel if they ever want one. And whereas when, when Jesus... Which one do you choose to give them? I, I typically choose Mark just because I feel like I know Mark the best. And therefore, mm-hmm. if they want to talk about it, I, I stand a slightly better chance of having something helpful to say. Yeah. But I noticed that in, in the 90s back then, you know, the issue would be... Jesus casts out the demon into the herd of the pigs and the pigs go down into the into the water and drown. The question 30 years ago was, you don't really believe in demons, do you? Mm-hmm. The question now is, how can Jesus do that to those animals? Mm-hmm. So again, there's, there's a, the sensitivities have changed. We're more spiritually open, I think, than we were 30 years ago in terms of believing in, in the supernatural. Um, so we, we have fewer problems with demons. We have more problems with the ethics of drowning a, a herd of pigs. Hmm. As recently as yesterday, I have had uh, parents asking about what what do I do in terms of how fast changing the controversies are around gender and sexuality. Hmm. I mean, w- one of your books is called "Is God Anti-Gay." And that, of course, is right at the top of uh, often objections to Christianity. It's homophobic, it's transphobic, it's uh, something like that. And there are a lot of parents who are saying, I want to raise children who are not 
sheltered and antagonistic and fearful. And I also want to raise children who know how to, as a Christian, navigate hmm. through this kind of a world. How, how do you advise people to do that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Um, the, the time in which we live. And I, one of the reasons I, I say that is because even non-Christian friends of mine are saying they find it hard to have those conversations within their own secular communities. Um, I, yeah. I, I was talking to someone recently whose teenage son has been cancelled. The son isn't a Christian, but but didn't say the right term at a certain point. And there's a fear, you know, among our, our non-Christian friends as well of of you know saying the wrong thing, being cancelled, being termed as a as a phobic of some kind. Mm-hmm. So it's complicated for everyone. I think for for us as Christians, there's a lot of there are a lot of verses in the Bible encouraging us to be a good listeners and wise in what we say. Proverbs eighteen verse thirteen: If if you give an answer before you hear, it is your folly and shame. So it always does us good to try to to love our neighbour well by making every effort we can to understand them. So if if someone comes to me identifying as as non-binary or as something else, almost always my first question is, I'd I'd love to understand more about what you mean by that. And I'll try at some point, Most I'll I'll often say something like, I may get some language, I may be clumsy with some of my language. I I just want you to know I'm I'm not trying to be clumsy. I want to be sensitive. Um, But I just want to say now, if if I get something wrong or you feel offended by by a term I use, do do let me know. I'd love to I'd love to be aware of that, but I, I want you to know I'm not I'm not trying to be a jerk or anything. And and most people I I have spoken to at that point give you a lot of a lot of leeway. Mm-hmm. And the more thoughtful ones are aware that me being a Christian, I'm going to have very different convictions to them. But the fact that I've already made an effort to, to listen well to them, to try to understand them, is already showing them I might not be the kind of Christian that they am, they have in their imagination. Because there's a lot of rhetoric about Christians being being hateful and, and dangerous, it doesn't take much to gen, you know, to pleasantly surprise people by by being amiable, careful, sensitive, attentive and, and those things. And I think I've been thinking a lot about the life of Daniel recently with some of the, the kind of cultural situations we find ourselves in where Daniel was, re- was, was quite willing to go along with, with a lot of the, of the new culture he was exiled into, mm-hmm. but also made it very clear he had a red line he wouldn't, he wouldn't cross. And so I, I think for those of us who are spending a lot of time in circ- secular spaces, particularly those who were working for secular companies where there's a lot of pressure on some of these issues. I think it does as well to say, well, I, I want to be a Christian. I want to be compliant. Uh, I want to be um, obedient to my authorities, but I also want them to know they don't own me. And there will mm-hmm. be some red lines that I will I will not be willing to cross. Yeah, that's the hard part, isn't it? Knowing the difference between Daniel's not making a big deal about getting a Babylonian name when he, he's not making a He's not refusing to serve Nebuchadnezzar. When he's commanded to eat the delicacies, he first negotiates. Mm. How about this? Let's do this. 
And then there are points when he says no. Yeah. And it's, it really does take quite a bit of wisdom sometimes to figure out which of those places you're in, isn't it? It does. And I've, I've not done enough homework on, on the book of Daniel itself, but part of me wonders if some of those lines might at times need to be arbitrary. Mm. It may just be a case where we think, I do, I do need to draw the line somewhere. So I'm going to draw it in this particular place over here, not because that is the hill to die on, but because I need to have it somewhere. And and yeah. so part of me wonders whether, you know, there's lots of theories about why Daniel objected to the particular things that he did and allowed for other things. It may just be that part of biblical wisdom is is thinking, okay, at some point, they just need to hear me say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My my advice to to Christians in in very secular progressive workplaces is often compare notes with each other and, and compare notes about how you are responding to demands that are being made from from you and pray for wisdom. It, it's obvious that that objecting to everything all the time isn't isn't a good witness, and Daniel doesn't do that. It's also obvious that going with everything isn't a good witness, and Daniel doesn't do that. And so we yeah. need to allow each other. We, we may land in slightly different places about where we draw the line precisely. We need, I think, a, allow for that. There's going to be a, ne- a measure of freedom there, a measure of differing consciences um, and differing understandings of wisdom. Yeah. I was on the secular campus uh, not long ago where I was struck that in the room where I was speaking, it seemed as though maybe a third of the students there were non-binary, identified as as non-binary. I understand the cultural moment we're in. What what I'm wondering is, suppose, suppose there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a lot of those kids come to faith in Christ. When you think about, you know, how long it took all the rest of us to sort of get sanctified beyond just, okay, I believe Jesus and we're going to figure out what that means. <laughs> and sometimes it's really, say, it takes us a while to figure that out. Do you think the church is, is ready to receive and minister to those kids as Christians? Some, some would be, some, some yeah. won't be. And it's a great question. It's, it's the problem we want to have. Is, yeah. is messy converts. Um, all of us are to some extent, but there'll be a, a different kind of mess that comes out of the, the cultural time we're in now. And just thinking, you know, our, our friend Ray Ortland often talks about the, the need for gospel and safety and time. And with a lot of these mm-hmm. kids, should the Lord draw them to himself and should they stumble into our churches, we want to allow them, them time to figure out how to move forwards with Jesus sanctification doesn't happen overnight. Most of us don't change quickly. There'll be a lot of stuff that will need to be rethought and undone. And we shouldn't expect everything to be resolved in their minds by next Tuesday. Hmm. I often think this when someone comes to faith with a very sort of messy relational situation or whatever it might be, I think, okay, I know where I want them to end up in their discipleship, but I'm I'm not going to set a timescale to that because you know, sometimes the spirit moves quicker than I think it he will in someone's life. Sometimes I'm thinking, okay, I thought you would have got your head around this by now, but you haven't yet. Mm-hmm. But we'll still we, we all need patience. And the the key is just remembering how patient the Lord is with us because 
as you and I yeah. talk now, in a year's time, we, we may look back on the kind of people we were today and think, man, I can't believe I hadn't noticed that huge area of sin in my life, Yeah, that huge gap in my, my discipleship, and to, to allow for the, the fact that, that that's the case for all of us. Yeah. I got a text the other morning from a mutual friend of ours who's a, a minister in England who had been in another country, in a Middle Eastern country, and he texted me that while he was there, there had been 13 people who had come to Christ and were baptized. Hmm. And he said, if any church back home in England had 13 adult convert baptisms in a year, in a year, not just in a day as that was, but in a year, it would feel like a great awakening yeah. was was happening is the contrast was so great. And of course, if you look at United Kingdom, there are churches shutting down all the time, other churches that are barely hanging on. There's a, a majority non-Christian population now in England. Uh, do you think the United States is moving in that direction. Do, do you think that that's where we will be just in 10, 20 years? As in the direction of the UK? As in the direction of the UK, yeah. I, th I think so, um, because we, we're seeing the, the kind of cultural Christianity evaporating very, very fast. We're, we're both in Nashville. Nashville was always the buckle of the Bible belt. It is now the the buckle of the of the dechurching movement. It, it's mm -hmm. it's ground zero for a lot of that. The thing that is different now to 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, is that the cultural changes are no respecter of geography. And so your 14-year-old your in, in Alabama is, is facing the same cultural pressures as a 14-year-old in Manhattan um, because smartphones, internet has has leveled the playing field on that front which means that areas that felt kind of geographically protected from non-Christian cultural movements and that kind of thing, actually, you know, are just as vulnerable. And we're seeing what had been fairly flimsy foundations in much of our church life being inadequate to cope with a lot of the questions people are asking. I don't think it's an entirely bad thing that this process is happening because I think it's, it's stripping away cultural accretions to our Christianity. It's making sense, okay, okay, what do I, what what does the gospel really have to say? And do we still believe it is the power of God for the salvation of, of all who, who believe? And I do wonder whether, as we see the church in such crisis at the moment, on all the things that we've we've talked about and you you explain in your book, I do wonder if if part of what God might be doing is were some kind of awakening to, to break out in the near future here in the States, I wonder if part of what God has been doing is getting us to the point where none of us is going to be able to take the credit for it. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're so weak. We're so unimpressive. I was thinking it would be actually a pretty good time for God to detonate something big because <laughs> none of us are going to think, oh, yeah, that's because we, we got our movement to the right place and we've got our institutions De to the right place. Detonate meaning, meaning to grow something. Uh, yeah, so right. a, good, yeah. a good detonation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So part of me thinks, you know, maybe maybe the Lord is just, is just humbling us so that as and when blessing does come, we're not mistaking it for 
our own expertise or anything like that. I have to hope that's part of what's going on. Because it feels like God is God is pulling things apart and, and pulling things down. And I, I have to hope it's so that he can build something far greater than we, we would have ever come up with ourselves. Yeah, and I have to suspect maybe the next John Wesley is in Iran <laughs> or Azerbaijan uh, or somewhere right now that God's doing something that we don't see and don't expect. Amen to that. Amen to that. I think part of it is we, this is a Western thing generally. We tend to think, well, whatever's next that's going to be big is obviously going to come from the West first. Mm-hmm. And so it would it would be delightful if the next big movement of of the Holy Spirit came from you know parts of the world American evangelicals tend to look down on. Yeah, as did the first great movement, exactly. not out of the West. Yeah, <laughs> Sam Alberry, thanks so much for being with me today. How can people uh, find you and keep up with you? Well, I, I, you know, I'm trying not to go near social media much these days, so probably not there. But okay, uh, I'm, at, I'm at Emmanuel Nashville, so my teaching is a lot of it's there. I do have a website that I never, I never update. So if they want to know what I was doing seven <laughs> years ago, they can go to <laughs> samwalbury.com. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today, Sam. Great to see you. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Azare Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.